0: And we've come tonight to discuss discipleship. Now great multitudes, verse 25, were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel, whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation, and asks terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will, it, what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, that is, if you have spiritual discernment, you hear this. In the decade of the 70s, <clears throat> Discipleship was kind of a watchword, a buzzword. And everybody was talking about discipleship. And sometime uh, during that time, we even valued or gauged the ministry of a pastor on the basis if he, uh, uh, of whether or not he was a discipler, if he gave emphasis to discipleship. Frankly, the word discipleship is an overworked, overused, undeveloped concept. For while we have done a a lot of talking about discipleship, and we've heard a lot about disciples and discipleship, we are not discipling. Now before we get into the issue of discipleship, I wanna lay some background about it, and I want you to turn to the 28th chapter of the book of Matthew. Now, somewhere, yeah, there it is, upon the board here, one of the first things I noticed <clears throat> when I came into this auditorium, way back when, preaching revival here uh, years ago, I walked in here and that was the first thing I noticed, and I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if they really, really practice that. You know. Well, I found out. <clears throat> now. Verse 16 begins chapter 28, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain with which Jesus had designated. And when they saw Him, they worship Him, worshiped Him, but some were doubtful. Now, is that amazing or what? <laughs> that You've got 11 men who spent three years with Jesus, have now been uh, witness to the resurrection and they still had some doubts. To these men, there were still some unsolved mysteries and some questions yet unanswered. I suppose that what we hear in that is, is that Jesus commands discipling and He designates disciples and those disciples are not those who have all the answers. You think you have struggles, so did they. And it's to these fellow strugglers who still had doubts after all of these years that he gave, gave this commission. And he said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you all even to the end of the age." Now the one action word, one action command in that great commission is this, make disciples. And everything else is more or less supplementary to that is attendant to it and a supplement to it, but that is the one action word or action command. Now, it involves going and it involves teaching, but the great commission is to make disciples. And you say, well, I'm winning people to Christ, but are you discipling anybody? You say, well, you just don't know how many years I've been a teacher in the Sunday school class, but are you discipling anybody? And if we're not making disciples, we're not fulfilling the Great Commission, regardless of what else, ever else, we want to do and, and you know, however else we want to talk about it. Now, there is some mistaken concepts, and I need to lay these to, you know, aside and, and deal with these before we get any further. By the way, I'm, on, I'm preaching my dominoes sermon tonight. If I don't deliver this in 30 minutes, you don't have to pay me. So you can keep a watch on it and just hang in there. The first mistaken concept is that, that Jesus really ministered, or you know, to the multitudes, and that Jesus' primary ministry was the great crusade ministry, and that there were many converts who followed Christ. That is not so. There were many followed him at the beginning, folks who went along with him at the beginning, but he spent most of his time with a few men, a handful of men, of eleven or twelve men. Now I want you to see how it worked in Mark chapter three, and all of this you've heard before, but you're going to hear it again. Mark chapter three, verse thirteen. And verse 13 of chapter 3 in Mark's gospel reads like this. And he went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. And he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Now, probably some of you might be thinking, now that, that must be a wonderful thing. What a, what a great thing that Jesus wanted these men and He summoned them and in essence He said, I want to make an impact through you in this world. Um, a phrase that um, Wayne Bristol used a lot, world changers. I'm going to take just some of you men and with you men I'm going to change the world. Now probably what our, one of the false concepts we have is that he must have chosen the, the, the brightest and the sharpest and the great ones with the greatest potential in the whole world. Now that's a mistaken concept. Um, in Coleman's book, The Master Plan of evangelism, of evangelism, listen to what he said. One of the most impressive things about these disciples were that they were not key men. They did not occupy a place in the synagogue. They did not belong to the line of the Levitical priesthood. They were common, laboring men, probably not educated beyond the knowledge necessary for their vocation. Perhaps there were a few families of considerable means, such as the sons of Zebedee, but they had none that would be considered wealthy. They had no academic degree no formal education, they probably only went to the synagogue school, and all but one came from the poor section of the country called Galilee, and the one who didn't was Judas Iscariot. They were considered as a ragtag delegation at best." End of quote. Now what he's saying is, is that the kind of people that Jesus called out for his disciples were folks just like you and me. Now I want you to look at verse 14 of chapter 3. And he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Now here's the order, here's the process, here's how it worked. He summoned them to himself. That's what happens when somebody responds in an invitation and he feels the tug of Christ upon his life and he calls them to himself. And nobody can come to Christ except the Holy Spirit draws him. And then there is an appointment, step two, and then there is an association, an involvement with Christ an association, an involvement with Christ, and then they are sent out to service. And we make a terrible mistake, I think, when we snatch people from the birth process immediately and send them out. For before one can be a discipler, he is summoned and he has an association with Jesus Christ. Now, the third misconception is some people say, "Well, these, this refers only to those who are present on the day of the great commission." Well, let's see if that's a misconception. If you will flip to the eight to the fourteenth chapter of the book of Acts, I'm going to read verses twenty and twenty-one. Acts fourteen, chapter tw- chapter fourteen, verse twenty. And just keep your finger in the book of Acts because we're going to come back to, that, to it in just a minute. But verse 20 of 14. But while the disciples stood around him, he arose and entered the city. And the next day, he's talking about Paul. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Now I'm sitting here, I'm standing here tonight looking at folks sitting out there looking up at me and you've come to church on Sunday night because Sunday night's the time you come to church. This friend of mine who used to be in my church, wonderful guy. I love him because we spent two hours together at lunch and spent in, in an hour and 45 minutes of that was spent in laughter. He's a tremendous, great great guy, just with a tremendous sense of humor. And he said, well, do your folks come on Sunday night to your church? I said, you bet. He said, well, I didn't hear you hammering at home like you used to do when I was sitting out there listening to you. And I said, well, I don't have to. They just come anyway. You know, I'm just kind of pulling his leg a little bit. And so you've come on Sunday night. You're sitting here because Sunday nights the thing you do, and you're going to listen to a sermon. And when you get when you finish listening to the sermon, you're going to leave, and you're going to do just like you've always done for every Sunday night. You're going to take what you hear, and that's just about it. I'm here to tell you, I'm talking. I mean, I mean, am serious about this this matter that what you and I have been called to do is exactly what we are not doing. We are not being discipled and we are not making disciples. We're coming to church and we're coming to Sunday school. Well, let me tell you what. It's a whole lot more to being a disciple than that. All right, does it work? What happens, what happens, What does it take to make a world changer? I mean, if a disciple becomes a world changer, let me see a picture of that. Well, the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. The fourth chapter of the book of Acts, I'm going to read uh, beginning verse 4, just get let you remember now that Peter and John were arrested. I have a feeling other disciples were there. Verse 4, but many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now jump down to verse 13. Peter, James, Peter, and John arrested. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That when they took stock of this issue, it just began to dawn on them that these untrained, uneducated men had something that had an impact upon them that was irrefutable. And the reason it had such an impact was they had what? Been with Jesus. Does it work? Well, it does. Now to the text. Back to the 14th chapter of the book of Luke. How am I doing on my time? I don't I would be sure I really I, I, I want to get paid. Oh I'm a, hey. now the crowd is following Jesus in this text, and their eyes are bugging out and they're anticipating a miracle. For after all, isn't that what he's about? This miracle worker. We're gonna have a, we're gonna have bread today. We're gonna see another miracle happen now. And all of a sudden, he turns around to the crowd and he says, You cannot be my disciple if. You cannot be my disciple if. You cannot be my disciple if. And when he finished that little discourse, the crowd began to thin out, for suddenly they realized that he was not interested in just getting a crowd. Now, somehow, along the way, we've missed the mark at this point because we are just happy as what my father used to call a dead pig in the sunshine. We can just get a crowd. you know, And we gauge the value of what we do on Sunday morning to a great degree by the crowd. If we can get a crowd. He's not interested in getting a crowd. And it thins out. I want you to look at verse 25 again of that 14th chapter that I read right before Mark's sermon, uh, song. Now the great multitudes were going along with him, going along with him. And it sounds like, you know, it sounds like the 20th century because a lot of people, you know, just kind of drifting along, you know, Sunday after Sunday going along with the Lord, you know, just kind of Christ died for me and that kind of thing. And he turns around, and I can just see this long index finger pointing at them. And in verses 26, 27, and verse 30, he spells out the requirements. Now, verse 26, the requirement of being a disciple has to do with relationships. And he said, that if you don't hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister and your wife, you cannot be my disciple. And that's just plain as you, know, as you can get it. Now I hear what you're saying. You're saying, "Ah, oh, I knew there were contradictions in Scripture. Because the Bible says for us to love everybody and then it says for us to hate them. The Bible says that we're to honor our father and our mother. Then it says we're to hate them. I knew there were contradictions in the Bible. Well, you know that's not true. You know that God doesn't contradict himself. Has to be another answer here. What he's talking about is the lordship of Christ over over every relationship, even the relationship of your family. Easy for you to say. Now, to understand this, we need to recognize that the Hebrew thought Hebrew thought makes much of extremes and, and everybody understood that so that, that the Hebrew would talk like this if he wanted to say I like this more than I like that he'd say I love this and I hate that and they understood that and what he's talking about here concerns a commitment to God which transcends every relationship it means that allegiance to Christ is to have priority over everything else, even family itself. And so the will of God must be elevated over the will of the family and your relationships, whatever they are. And what on the surface appears to be directed against the family is in reality the only way in which a family can truly be blessed. Now watch this. For instance, if you love your family in such a way that you put them ahead of God, or if you have a relationship in which you put that relation person or that, man, that boy, that girl, that man or that woman, ahead of God in that relationship, you know what will happen? You will end up worshiping your family And they will end up being all you have. And you will end up being all they have. And we recognize here that family love, though a wonderful thing, can be a tragic thing. If the center of your life is your family in such a way that you place them above God, you will end up worshiping your family and they'll be all that you have. In contrast... If the Lord is first in your life, you'll learn to love your family in such a way that you'll love them toward God. And if you have a relationship in which Christ is first, you'll end up loving that person toward God. That happened to me. As long as the Lord is supreme in the relationship. And so Jesus is saying that if you're going to follow me and be my disciple, you need to understand that I must be first in every relationship. Secondly. He's talking about personal ambition and personal goals. And he said, If you're going to be my disciple, you must take up your cross. It was like saying, Take up the gas chamber, take up the electric chair, because the cross was the instrument of death. What he's saying is that that if you're going to be my disciple, Knowing me and following me and loving me must be the supreme goal of your life. And would you fill in the blank, do it honestly, you don't have to say it out loud. My great goal in life is to... Now Jesus said, if, if I'm going to disciple you, if you're going to be my disciple... You, your goal in life must be this. I want to honor Christ and do His will. And that is my life goal. Honor Christ and do His will. Now the third condition, requirement for discipleship is found in verse 33. It has to do with possessions. So we have relationship. We have personal goals and ambition. We have possessions. And He say, you cannot be my disciple unless... All you possess, you give to me. Now somebody, I don't remember who it was, um, gave a little bit of a, uh, an explanation of the parable of the pearl of great, greatest price. And it is like this. said so the guy was looking for the pearl of great price. You've heard that parable. The pearl that is of the, the greatest value. You found it. So he said to the man, how much for the pearl? He said, well, it's pretty expensive. I don't know where you can afford it now. He said, How much? Come on, tell me how much. He said, Everything you have. Everything. Yes, everything. How much do you have? He said, Well, I have about $10,000 in the bank. He said, Well, that's, let's sign that over. So they got out a little document. He signed over those CDs. He said, Man, that just leaves the money I got in my pocket. Oh, you got some money in your pocket? He said, Well, that's, that's my. Mine too. So he emptied his pockets. He said, man, I don't know what I'm going to do when I get home. Oh, you've got a home? Well, yeah. He said, I, got, I have a... Well, he said, you know, sign that over to me. And he said, well, you know, I when I get home, <laughs> well, how are you going to get home? He said, well, in the car. You got a car? Well, he said, got a deed to that car? You sign that deed over. He said, well, what am I going to tell my... Wife, just as he got it out of his mouth. He said, oh, you have a wife? You've got a family? They belong to me. He said, oh, by the way, you belong to me as well, for everything you possess is mine. And then he said, now I'm going to lend you this that belong, all of it is mine. I'm going to lend this to you for you to use. I'm going to lend you this money and I'm going to lend you that car you're driving and that house you live in and those clothes you're wearing and I'm going to lend you that family but any time that I choose I can, I can ask for anything because after all it belongs to me. Now Isn't that a fantastic way to live? To understand that I'm taking all that I have and I'm going to give it to God. It's His anyway and He lends it back to me and that means that it's His And he can do with it whenever he chooses. And if you're going to be a disciple, that's the condition. That everything you possess, you understand, belongs to him. So if he wants your time, and he wants your possessions, and he wants your relationships, they're his anyway. Now, he comes to that little statement and he says, For what man who builds this building doesn't first sit down and count the cost? And I don't know how many times I've heard that preached this way. And I don't know how many times I've preached it this way wrong. Jesus is not saying, before you follow me, you sit down and count the cost. Before you decide, you're going to follow me. He's not saying that. For who is the one who is doing the building here? Who is the one who is who is gathering up the army for the battle here. It's Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is this, I have already sat down, and I have counted the cost, and this is what it's going to cost you to follow me. You see what I'm saying? He said, I've already counted the cost, and this is what it's going to cost to follow me. Now you understand it's gonna cost you every relationship I become first, it's going to mean that, that you're going to let me have all of your possessions and surrender your personal goals and desires to do my will. You ready to do it? Now there's some benefits of discipleship. I want you to jot these down. And there, there are three positive and there are three negative. And then we're out of here. The first, benefit of discipleship. Now, now, uh, Andy and Kim, they got some stuff going, some discipleship stuff going. Here's some benefits. Number one, it reinforces the ministry. It reinforces the ministry of the Word by personalizing it. You know, just to, you know how much um, impact that my sermons have on this community? Don't answer that. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I've been here 12 years preaching five times a week. I'm not really that, you know, I, I'm, I'm not vain enough to think that I'm really making an M. Because the fact is, is that the word has to be personalized. Okay. Kenneth Erickson tells about this man he saw in Baca, Bangladesh. He, he had no legs, he's getting around without legs. He said he didn't have a wheelchair and he didn't have a, uh, he didn't have a platform with wheels on it where he could pull himself along. He, he rolled, he said. First on his back, then on his side, then on his stomach, then on his side, then on his back, and he just rolled. And he was talking to somebody who knew this man in the community, and and the man said, every Friday, that man rolls down to the temple to worship and praise God. And he said, the impact that man in the nonverbal testimony of his life on that community, he said, was astounding. He said, you go into ba- Baca, Bangladesh, and try to preach the gospel of Christianity, and they're all going to point to this man who rolls every Friday down to the temple. What, what he's saying is, is that he's taken wor- the word, even though it might be the f- a false word, and he has personalized it to the point that he has made an impact with his life. Don't you want to do that? Secondly, discipleship translates biblical truth into practical living. You can see it lived out in practical ways, you see. It has answers to practical problems. And don't, Misunderstand the fact that everybody has practical problems. And we may get up here on Sunday morning and talk about, you know, uh, Manasseh and the Jews, and, 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 and you're saying, well, how can that help me with my problem at school, et cetera? Third, discipleship's, discipleship develops character qualities that are never learned in church. Now, what are some negatives? Three. The benefit of it in a negative way is that discipleship is not limited to Sunday. It's not limited to Sunday or to age or to church. Second, it is not structural, it doesn't have three hymns and an offering. I love this. It's not a program. It's a relationship which proceeds and operates at a point of personal identity. It's a relationship. And I suppose that everybody who's grown up in a Baptist church can tell you about its program and might not have a personal relationship that they can identify with Jesus Christ. There are many legends, this and I'm through, of the Taj Mahal. One of my favorite is the story about the Mughal Emperor. You want to hear the money Mughals? The Mughal Emperor by the name of Shah Jahan. His favorite wife died and he wanted to construct a temple that would serve as her tomb. And so he took her casket, her coffin out into the center of this large piece of property, this large land mass. He set this coffin down in the middle of it and he brought in all these workmen and he's gonna build this temple around her coffin and he wanted it to be such that would honor her and, and be a worthy uh, uh, monument to her. And the work began and he became engrossed in the building of the temple. He, he soon stopped mourning for this favorite wife and he, because he was obsessed with the construction of the temple and and the work went on day after day, week after week, month after month. And one day he was walking through the, the the debris and the dirt and the and the trash and the and the and the stuff from the from the from the workman and he he, he hit his leg on an old box sitting there and he he brushed his brushed his robe got the dust off and he, he called one of his workmen and said throw that box away. And little did he know that he had just given the command to throw her coffin away. And so while he was building the temple, he forgot about the wife. And in the construction of the temple, the temple went on, in the building of the temple, he he threw out. The object of the adoration. Now, let me tell you what happens if there is no discipleship. If there is no discipleship, you and I wind up worshiping the temple of God rather than the God of the temple. And we live the rest of our lives connected to a building, forgetting. For whom the building was erected. No one can follow me unless I'm first in every relationship, unless you lay aside your goals and dreams for my will, unless I have everything you want. Let's pray. Father, I pray tonight for both those who want to be disciple and those who will disciple and thus be the church as the church was meant to be in Jesus' name. Now in the spirit of prayer, look here. There may be some of you tonight who want to come and you just come forward to say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my life to Him. You may have not for the first time surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. and You say, I I want to follow Jesus. I want to begin following Christ. That's what Christianity is. Get up and follow Jesus. Show me how, you'd say. How I can take three, four. I'll begin to build my life into them and lead them to a walk with Jesus Christ I'm not sure that I would be the best person for you to talk to but we've got some people who can and we can help you make an impact on the world let's stand and we'll invite you to come while we sing